Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another week from our beautiful state. It's going to be a warm weekend. Summer is hanging on with us, and we have our full panel. It means Claire Zauke is with us. Claire is our Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action. Claire, great to see you from your home, safely from your home. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Good to see you, too. And Robert Craig is with us, the executive director. Robert, good to see you. Good day, everyone. So we got a lot to talk about. We are going to be joined later in the show by U.S. uh, Senate candidate Tom Nelson in our continuing series of talking with candidates running for the United States Senate against Senator Ron Johnson. Uh, And then in addition to that, we have a number of topics we're going to pepper through. There's a lot going on. Uh, both nationally and at the state level. But Claire, I'm going to come to you first because COVID and and the variant, the Delta variant, is absolutely gripping our state and our country. The numbers gotten significantly worse just even in the last day or so. Our state numbers, we had a shocking 3,426 cases uh, that were announced yesterday for, and, and these would have been Tuesday numbers, another 20 deaths, uh, and, and also new data that came out from the Department of Health, uh, DHS, that had uh, data on the unvaccinated were 11 times more likely to die from COVID in August in Wisconsin, uh, and also nine times more likely to fill hospital beds. Uh, Claire, this thing continues to rage, and we still continue while vaccination rates are going up. We still have a lot of unvaccinated folks, and of course, Still all our uh, folks under 12 unvaccinated. Claire? Yeah, so the state released its uh, numbers and we talked about them on the show almost weekly these days. And on the 14th, so we're recording this on the 16th. So on Tuesday, um, the number of new confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Wisconsin were 3,426. 3,426. And to give you some context, that's the range of number of new cases we were in last year from about mid-December through early January. Um, That's how far back we've slid in progress on um, number of positive cases. It's distressing. Um, and I, I hope that these numbers continuing to climb influence people to get vaccinated who haven't already, um, because it, yeah, like I said, we're we're losing ground against this virus, and it's alarming. Yeah, I, I hear you, right? Like the, my concern is we continue to still be in a situation where a lot of folks are, it appears, still very vaccinated, hesitant, or hesitant, uh, and also just not doing it. Robert, I want to get your just quick kick it to you thoughts. And also, you know, we continue to have a lot of, you know, it's a very strong movement against even masking in a lot of places. What's frustrating about the latest surge is it's so much more preventable than the last. Uh, what it reminds me of is we tend to think in our culture that there's a technical, technological solution to everything. We have the technological solutions. People won't use them. And so really, is this, this is a human problem, not just a technological problem. And the problem, the polarization, the divisions in our society brought on deliberately by the corporate sector and the right, it has led to this. And it, when you have this level of social division, you have people getting all the wrong cues. 
and people tend to follow their group. It's just that simple. We're much, we're not the independent, rational creatures that, you know, a lot of, uh, of, of theorists and philosophers hoped we were in the 18th and 19th century, unfortunately. And so they're not, and, but we got to be stronger. Like President Biden has done right with the vaccine mandate. Unclear whether that's going to be extended by Wisconsin's OSHA to public employees at this, at, as we say this. We know the state has discretionary money from the American Rescue Plan. Thank you, the new Democratic majority in Washington and the power of progressives to make them bolder. But we have the state epi- epidemiologist, Ryan Westergaard, on with Cuzzlick Radio this week, asking people to do their own contract tracing because we don't have the capacity. And n- numerous counties, including Marathon County, asking people who get infected, just call everyone who you had contact with and give them a heads up. We don't have any capacity. Where is the money? Just why is it not being surged into everything we need to do? And as far as mass mandates, there are ways to mandate them at the state level. Where is that? Uh, where's even the legislation that the, for the Republicans to be against by Democrats uh, trying to say, for example, that school districts must follow the public health guidelines and therefore must have social distancing and masking and testing? The- it's look, Robert, it's not it's certainly not going to come from state legislative Republicans. I mean, this week we had the very publicized walkout of uh, legislative Democrats um, uh, f- from a hearing, a public assembly education hearing, uh, because the Republicans won't even mask in the middle of uh, of this surge in spite of a number of folks explaining very clearly why it was important for them <laughs> that they they should should be uh, should be masked. Um, Robert and Claire, I want to talk about another cleavage here that's very important uh, that we've talked about in the past related to the vaccines, and that is this whole issue around, uh, while we may be having issues getting folks vaccinated here in other countries, it's literally access to vaccines. And we have talked about uh, in the past the problem around the vaccine patent waiver at the WTO. And Robert, I just wanted to, you apparently, there's some breaking news, breaking story from uh, In These Times, uh, who we are partnering with around uh, the U.S. hasn't really been actually pushing this at the W2, despite what the policy is. And this is critical. And Claire, after that, I'd like your comments. If we don't do this and think of this in a global level, which we sometimes fail to talk enough about, we're all cooked. Yes. So just to remind everyone, this whole idea that the pharmaceutical companies own the patents completely and that they're protected internationally was pushed by the United States at the behest of Big Pharma in the 80s and 90s. And as part of trade agreements, you can waive it. They're called tips waivers in something like a pandemic. And guess what? This is a pandemic. So that we could quickly allow the the manufacture of these vaccines to scale in low-income countries and get the world vaccinated, which would not only protect them, but protect all of us because the vaccine's out there mutating. It was huge news after a lot of pressure where the Biden administration shifted the longtime U.S. position um, and said that there should be such a patent waiver. But what doc- and we, there's been no action by the World Trade Organization, WTO. And I've been wondering, we know that EU and West Germany We all think they're more progressive than we are. They've been opposing, so they're in the pocket of big pharma, and big pharma's there too. So those are not perfect democracies, uh, just to point out. 
But uh, there's a breaking story in Indies Times Magazine. You can go to their website for this. Just, just uh, do a web search of Indies Times. Um, U.S. says it supports a COVID vaccine patent waiver, but documents reveal it's dragging its feet at WTO. So the U.S. is not. I was wondering if the Biden administration, and I haven't seen any coverage in New York Times, Washington Post, other sources of this, really after the big announcement was following through. And the answer is they're, they've changed their position, but they're not really pushing it through and taking on the EU and Germany to make this happen. And, and again, Claire, if if this doesn't happen, if we don't get uh, vaccines throughout the globe, again, remind <laughs> listeners just like how critical this is. Yeah, and to provide some context here, uh, so in Wisconsin, about 66% of people are vaccinated, of, of adults um, are vaccinated. So it's, you know, slightly more that have received at least one dose, slightly less that have been completed the full series, but about 66% of Wisconsinites have, uh, adult Wisconsinites have been vaccinated. Um, but if you look at other places in the world, that is much, much lower, right? So if you think about the continent of Africa, which is massive, 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 and has a very high population and therefore, um, you know, strong likelihood for the virus to spread between people and then therefore mutate quickly, vaccination rates are really, really low. I mean, you can look at, um, a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, that according to the New York Times Global Vaccine Tracker, um, has only administered 120,000 doses in the entire country, or about 0.1 per 100 people, right? Whereas, um, you know, the United States has administered 382 million doses with a rate of 115 per 100 people, right? And so, so you see, when we're talking about the disparity, it's easy to think about it in an abstract way. Um, but you, when you really look at the numbers and think about these as human lives, you can see just how meaningful it is um, that we fight for global vaccine access. And if we should care for just as moral people, as human beings, about the lives of people in other countries, um, but if you are somebody who doesn't like to think about the lives of other people in other countries, at least think about the lives of the people in our own community. Because as I said, um, the longer the pandemic goes on in um, places with high population rates that are where people are unvaccinated, the more likely that new variants are going to come up and they're going to be even worse than Delta. And again, this all is happening in the broader context. Uh, we are, it, it looks like, uh, very soon going to decide whether there should be uh, round three of, say, the Pfizer vaccine while those numbers Claire just presented are, are a reality. With that, we're going to take our first break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We were talking about COVID before. We'll continue to track that, but uh, folks, we have got to change topics because we're going to be joined by a candidate for the United States Senate, Tom Nelson, on the next segment. But uh, I wanted to quick give an opportunity to have an update on anything that may be happening in Congress with the latest on Build Back Better. Uh, Robert or Claire, Robert, uh, just any quick updates that you might have? Well, just updating our previous coverage here in Battleground, Wisconsin, we continue to be in the legislative part, the, the, the real content part of 
the biggest structural reform since the New Deal. It's sweeping. Most people don't even understand how big it is, which is itself a concern, given I think it's during the New Deal they did, and the same with the Great Society in the 60s. But there's a lot of back and forth with Senator Manchin claiming that he would, um, he'll only do 1.5 trillion of Biden's 3.5 trillion. You have Bernie Sanders saying, well, 3.5 trillion is the compromise. We started at 6 trillion and that's it. And that's what it's gonna be. So progressives are holding firm, the White House, Senator Schumer, the majority leader, and the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, are firm with the progressives. And there are a lot of fights between what kind of health care, uh, fossil fuel industry, utilities are trying to gut the climate provisions. Moderates are the major problem. The White House is got, starting to, to weigh in to actually put pressure on the moderates. This is very strange. This has not happened in 50 years where the progressives are aligned with the with the full Democratic Party and the moderates are the obstructionists. So they have been in the past. Joe, think about Joe Lieberman and the Affordable Care Act and the public option. But I just want to say it's a very odd thing. And you have to remember, the moderates are the ones who take the dirty money and they are cross-pressured. And some, they are in many ways not speaking philosophically. They are speaking for the interest. The largest corporate lobbying campaign at the end of the day, I think, in American history will take place to try to reshape this or block it, depending on what the issue is, by every major business interest in this country. Claire, I know you've been tracking this, and I think there's also been uh, certainly things passing through the House related to paying for this and other pieces. I don't know if you have any things you might want to add on that. I do, indeed. Uh, This has been a week of high productivity in the two most important, as far as the healthcare policy goes, um, in the Build Back Better bills, the two most important committees in the House of Representatives. And those are the Ways and Means Committee and the Committee on Energy and Commerce. And those two committees uh, both released their um, frameworks, we'll call them, for the, what they're going to fund in the package. And these are, these are just their first drafts. Um, there's still time to uh, change things and to try to make them better. And thank goodness for that, because um, each included something that we think is bad. Um, and so the Ways and Means Committee uh, included the prescription drug stuff that we care about, the price negotiations, great. Um, but in their Medicare, not Medicaid, but Medicare expansion uh, stuff, they, uh, which as a reminder is supposed to extend uh, Medicare coverage to include dental vision and hearing. They included all those components, but a much longer ramp up for some of them that we would like. So for example, the dental coverage wouldn't be fully implemented until 2028, which is just really too far out. I mean, we thought maybe like a three-year ramp up we don't like, but was reasonable because that's what the Medicaid uh, federal expansion federal alternative is looking at for a ramp up. So we were kind of prepared for that, but this seven year ramp up is just ridiculous. And so we need to put pressure on our ways and means committee members to make that markup better. And lucky for us, we have two members of the Ways and Means Committee here in Wisconsin, Representative Ron Kind in the western part of the state and Representative Gwen Moore in the southeastern part of the state. So if you live in the La Crosse, Eau Claire area or Milwaukee area, reach out to your member of Congress and say, hey, we need the Medicare expansion stuff to be better and build back better. And then the second committee um, 
energy and commerce, they did something real bad. Um, there are three moderates, uh, none of whom are from Wisconsin, on that committee who voted to take the prescription drug reform stuff out of the bill entirely. And that's a really, really big problem because not only does it show the power of big pharma in controlling members of Congress, but the way the bill is structured, the revenue saved from Medicare negotiating for lower drug prices, that's is $700 billion. And that's the money that's going to be used to fund all of the other healthcare reforms in the Build Back Better legislation. So without that in the bill, the entire healthcare package is really at risk. Um, now, thankfully, because Ways and Means included the prescription drug reforms in their version of the bill, it will still come to the floor. And Speaker Pelosi is still... Uh, strongly supportive of the prescription drug reforms, um, but it, it shows that they're at more at risk than we thought. So, um, you know, call your members of Congress and tell them to put pressure on their friends in Congress, especially the moderates. And I want to I want to underscore uh, just how popular these pieces of Build Back Better is. There's some new polling that came out this week. The plan overall is is supported by 67% of Wisconsin voters. And we're talking about uh, the $3.5 trillion uh, human infrastructure components, right? We're not just talking about uh, the stuff that passed the Senate. And Claire, it's just amazing to hear that anyone would be against any of these components because the individual components are wildly popular, right? Like the expanding medic... Medicare coverage is 82% popularity here in Wisconsin, right? You know, the child care investments, right, that we've been talking about in the past, 70% support. The clean energy investments that we've been talking about, 67% support, right? Just a whole host of stuff. I will uh, we'll make sure that that information is uh, is captured on the uh, on our website. But this is just really critical stuff. Um, before, though... We go to break, and we're going to have a have a break coming up uh, very shortly. Robert, I do want to give you an opportunity. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about what's been going on back here in the state around the Gableman Voss election probe um, and some of the news it's getting. Well, this is getting crazier and crazier, um, and this is getting Arizona level. And for those people following that, it's a national embarrassment what Arizona is trying to do still to overturn. Uh, the 2020 election. So we had all the previous news and there's, there's, there's more new reporting on it around Gableman uh, talking to Arizona conspiracy theorists who somehow got a lot of their ideas from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and, uh, be, and going to some event held by the pillow guy. <laughs> He's one of the Trump supporters, the, the pillow magnate who had a plan for martial law he took to the White House uh, before uh, Trump finally left office. And um, now we have the latest, and this has become national news very quickly, uh, Gableman, who sounds very like he's a former Supreme Court justice and he's an authority, sounds good on the radio if not challenged or on television. If the reporter doesn't really challenge him, which a lot of them don't, that this letter he sent to all of the city and county clerks, all the election officials saying to retain all their records, that it was ghost written by Andrew Colster, who was a, one of the Trump attorneys trying to overturn the elections. And so he would, it was ghost written. And how, how do we know? Uh, I think uh, I could tell you, anyone starting out, that a Word document 
has an author embedded in it. And if you just take someone else's document and says your own, all you have to do is look in the properties and find out who the author is. And it is this Trump lawyer, not the esteemed Michael Gableman. So I know Robin Voss is trying to avoid the stigma of Arizona being pushed on him by the chair of the Elections Committee, Representative Brandigan. Uh, it's just as bad. It's spending a ton of money and it is doing what they want. It is, it is basically destroying any kind of credibility and authority for our democracy. And that is partly why the COVID thing is going crazy. There has been a right-wing conspiracy for decades to destroy any authority that gets in their way, like scientific authority around smoking, around climate, around lead paint, you name it, uh, any kind of pollution. And that is now extended to COVID and it extended our own democracy, which is extremely dangerous because if you do that, then if, if a third of the population doesn't think our democratic institutions even exist unless they win, then you don't have a functioning democracy, folks. Look, folks, we've been talking about this uh, on the podcast a lot about the division within uh, uh, the Republicans, the state legislative Republicans, particularly within Voss's caucus, right? We've been describing it as sort of the QAnon uh, uh, caucus has really challenged Voss, and we've seen it on this issue. Uh, he's under a tremendous amount of pressure, rightfully so. I mean, he's empowered these folks, um, and it's playing out in this situation. Uh, shout out, though, to a lot of the clerks this week who really, um, I mean, they were extraordinarily public and strong in their statements. George Christensen here in Milwaukee. Some of the counties, too, that are like deeply Trump counties were just like, we're not opening this thing. This thing, this email that was sent is, uh, uh, does it violates all of our protocols for what we would accept for emails, right? Just further demonstrating that this is all just a giant uh, a sideshow and it's a travesty for democracy. But um, quite frankly, uh, if, if California, and I'm going to close with this and we're going to uh, take a break and be joined by uh, 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 Senate candidate Tom Nelson right after this break. Um, but California recall demonstrated you want to run around and tell everybody elections are fixed and, and rigged and whatever. It's it's not going to be ultimately really good to motivate your folks, uh, especially in an off year election. But with that, we got to take a break. We're going to be right back. We're going to uh, jump back into our interviews we have been doing with candidates for the absolutely critical United States Senate race. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. And we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are really fortunate to be joined by Ottagamie County, Ottagamie County Executive Tom Nelson. But we're not having him here just to talk about that. He is, more importantly, he is a candidate for the United States Senate, and uh, he joins us today to talk about his campaign. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Tom. Good to be on. Great to be here. So, look, we are, we're talking about this way out of the election because it is absolutely critical. It is likely going to be one of the top United States Senate uh, races in the country. Uh, so, Tom, tell our listeners first a little bit more about you. Um, I think a lot of them know who you are, but some may not. Uh, but then tell us also why you decided to get into this uh, this race. All right. Thank you so much. So I'm the Outagamie County Executive. And so what that means is I oversee 23 departments and a workforce of about 1,300 people. Of the 23 departments, I oversee everything from an international airport that contributes $700 million of economic activity each year, supports directly or indirectly 
3,000 workers and uh, a criminal justice treatment services department that is on the leading edge of important criminal justice reforms in 21 other departments. And I've been doing this for three years, so since 20, 2011, I'm sorry, for three terms since 2011. Before that, I served in the legislature as a state assemblyman from 2005 to 2011. And the last term, 2009, 2010, I served as majority leader. So taking those two sets of public service, that's six elections, and what sets me apart for this entire field is I'm the only one from a red part of the state who won election, who won election and re-election six times. And the number one question that you hear from your, from your members and anyone in general in Democratic primary is simply who can beat Ron Johnson. And I'm the one with a proven track record. So if that is in fact the question, which I think it is, I am the candidate and I'm in the best position to win. So before I was a county executive and in the state assembly, I grew up in Little Chute, which is a little village here in Outagamie County. And I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood where most of the dads worked at paper mills, except for my dad who wore the white collar and he was a Lutheran pastor. And so I learned two important lessons growing up. Number one, the importance of serving your neighbor. And then number two, the, the culture or the sense of community to always have your neighbor's back. Whether it's to pitch in on a Saturday afternoon to help build a backyard deck or for a paper worker that might have been laid off and need some help between jobs. Those are the types of things that were expected of me. Uh, that were expected of our community. And I've taken that same community and have developed a litmus test, which is simply when it comes to legislation, when it comes to a county budget, whatever it might be, the question I ask is, is this good or is this not good for the men and women, the families, the working families on Carolyn Drive, or maybe the family farmers in Western Wisconsin, in Polk County, where my aunt and uncle um, are running the family farm. So those are the types of things. That's a type of approach. That's the kind of attitude, philosophy, and also the background, I think, that we need in our next U.S. Senator. Everyone's going to say, I'm going to fight for working families. Anyone can say that. But you have got to have walked in their shoes. I'm one of the few non-millionaires. I'm running against two millionaires and a billionaire. So I don't have the resources to be able to underwrite a campaign. And so what I have to rely on is I rely on a grassroots strategy. And that's one of the reasons why I got into this race 11 months ago, not because I'm a glutton for punishment, but because that's what you need to do if you really want to build a grassroots campaign. So that's a little bit about me, what I'd like to do. And um, why don't we stop there and let's take some specific questions. Claire. Yeah, thanks. I am really excited to have you on the show because we haven't had a chance to talk a lot yet. 
but you have come out really strong in support of a lot of the healthcare reforms that we support. And I always enjoy reading your emails when they come through because you're talking about um, the your personal experiences, the personal experiences, the people in your community. And so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of that with us now. Um, you know, you've come out publicly in support of Medicare for All, which we love. Um, can you talk about uh, sort of your, your journey of coming to support Medicare for All and maybe any personal experience or what you see in the community that informs uh, your stance on reforming our healthcare system? Yeah, well, I think that Medicare for All is one of the most important, if not the most important issues. And I think that's another thing. When we talk about litmus tests, you need to nominate a Democrat who is a progressive a Democrat who is going to support Medicare for All. And, you know, there aren't that many people in this race that do that. And I've been talking about this for the last seven or eight months and I've got a great reception. And not just among Democrats, but Republicans, right? Because a lot of people recognize in terms of values, it's unacceptable that 30 million people go without health insurance and millions more don't, do not have adequate health insurance. I think that's un, 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 unacceptable. And it's something we have to change. And for me, it's also personal because my wife, and my mom had cancer. My mom and my wife is a cancer survivor. And what my mom and my wife have in common or had in common is access to good health insurance. And that's a big reason why I'm pushing this because it's important policy. I'm tired of this debate, this nibbling around the edges and this monster gets bigger and bigger. I don't want to go to Washington to cover millions. I want to cover everyone. And until we reach that, you're going to have this fundamental unfairness, this injustice, and it needs to stop. And that's what I plan to do. So that would pair you with Tammy Baldwin, who is one of the few Senate sponsors of Medicare for All. It is fascinating that uh, not all the candidates have embraced it in this Democratic primary. So I, I think that'll become a big issue. Let me ask you, after a couple kind of bellwether issues, it can get confusing for voters to think about all the things the state senator takes on, right? And of course, we have a lot of new things coming before senators. So I think part of it is sort of they try to imagine a voter who, what kind of person they want making those decisions, right? And one way to do that, even though I've went to one person, and I know you, Tom, knowing you way back, you're a very distinct person. You'll be your own senator. You'll be Tom Nelson, the senator. But is there a senator currently that you would reference as, you know, the most similar in terms of what lane you're in, understanding any other senator you mentioned is going to also be very distinct for you in a lot of ways, a different human being, different personality. I know some of the candidates have been willing to answer that question. I think it really helps people understand where you're coming from. So because we, if we look at this debate, look at the struggle between the progressive wing and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, just get, you know wh where you would fall and what senator, if you want to say more than one, you think you'd be most aligned with and similar to, so they can have a point of reference, so our listeners can. Well, I think the one that I that I closely align with is uh, Sherrod Brown. And the reason I say that though is we have, you know, we come from similar states. We have a similar philosophy. We look at the world in a very similar way, which is an economic perspective. As I mentioned before, I think it really goes to my roots. Um, growing up in a blue collar neighborhood, 
So I look at things like how can we improve the economy by having workers organize? How can we make sure that at bottom workers have in a, a, a good acceptable minimum wage, like $15 an hour? And Shara Brown, I think, is respected as the leading, if one, one of the leading, if not the leading labor advocates. I think that's absolutely crucial as we're dealing with this economy coming out of COVID, that you have strong pro-union leadership, knowing that that's the way in which you fix an economy and make it more fair. And I should also mention too, on top of this, I'm the only one running who was a Bernie Sanders delegate. And there were, I think, two um, you know, that, that were running that were not delegates, that were not Bernie delegates. And um, my, you know, my approach and my viewpoint also lines up with someone like Bernie Sanders, because he too has an economic-based outlook. And he is someone that is, you know, unapologetic unapologetically progressive, but here's what is important, is he is one of the most consequential members of the US Congress right now because of the role that he has placed in forging a compromise, but then not compromising some important values, the $3.5 trillion um, reconciliation bill. I mean, that's got Bernie's fingerprints all over it. If it wasn't for his leadership, I don't think that we'd be in this position right now. With that, we have got to take our first break. We really appreciate Tom Nelson joining us. Again, folks, if you want to check out more on um, Tom, you can check out his site, which is Nelson for Wisconsin. That's N-E-L-S-O-N-F-O-R-W-I.com. We'll be right back after this break and continue our conversation with Tom Nelson. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are joined by United States Senate Democratic candidate Tom Nelson. He is the Outagamie County Executive, and we're having a good back and forth. Claire, you have the next question. Thanks. So in addition to talking about healthcare, one of the things that I love to talk about is tax reform, which a lot of people may not find uh, really uh, interesting, um, but I do. And I imagine as somebody running for U.S. Senate, you probably um, have spent some time thinking about how we fund government services. And of course, taxes is that way. Um, so and especially in the time of Build Back Better legislation, which I know you just said you've been following, uh, a big part of it is how are we going to reform um, taxes for corporations and the ultra wealthy in order to fund the services for mm-hmm. working and middle class Americans and Wisconsinites. Can you talk to us a little bit about if you've thought about um, uh, tax reform, especially as it relates to the ultra wealthy and corporations in this country? Yes, I support the ultra wealthy tax. And I also support, um, of course, taxing corporations, taxing the rich and making sure that for the first time in 41 years, that they would actually be paying their fair share. And not only is this important to fund the, what, you know, the social and the economic and the physical capital reconciliation, but we can talk about that too, but why that's so important, why it's important to fuse both human and and physical capital when it comes to infrastructure, which I think is very important though. But think of taxing the rich and taxing the corporations as a policy tool. 
not just a funding tool. I talk about this a lot on the can on the campaign trail. I just finished up doing a 72 county listening session tour. We were supposed to do it in 72 days, but we did it in 43 days. And what I learned again and again, being on, you know, whether it's in the countryside, talking to family farmers, Main Street businesses all throughout the state. There is the problem with corporate consolidation and corporate power and how it is crushing everyone. And it all began, I believe, in the late 1970s and then the election of Ronald Reagan. Before that, you had a really, really high upper income marginal tax rate. And not coincidentally, that was a time when companies, corporations had the incentive to plow earnings into better wages, making improvements in the workplace, putting money into a pension program, and research and development. And as a historical note, about the time that Ronald Reagan had those major cuts in taxes was about the time that the 401k system started gaining popularity in corporate America, and you started moving away from pensions. So I look at couple of things. Wonder what, first of all, the fundamental fairness, making sure the rich pay their fair share. With growing income inequality, you have a destabilizing civil society. If you look at countries that have fallen apart, they are the ones that have this wide gap in income inequality. It's also important to pay for those services like the reconciliation bill. And then finally, as I just mentioned, it is a policy tool. So I look at the issue of tax fairness, taxing corporations, taxing the rich in that light. Robert, next question. I like the way you laid that out, Tom, or should I say, uh, uh, County Executive Nelson, let me be more formal. Um, so, I and I, there's a lot of thought about how we used our democracy, it's called by the other side, the government, like it's some negative independent, you know, third party. It's our democracy. It's what we can do together as a community. And so what we did in the 30s, 40s, 50s, up to the mid 70s, roughly, to actually create shared prosperity and create the largest middle class in American history. And it involved fair taxation, much higher rates on the wealthy and corporations, it involved a robust labor movement. There is no historical analog to building a large middle class with relatively shared prosperity without a robust labor movement. And we have allowed corporate America and right-wing politicians to destroy the labor movement and destroy the right to organize. And so you've been great talking about those issues. But one other way to also view it, and this gets us back to Green New Deal and the Black Lives Matter movement kind of integrates that in, is that really great analysis and some of the popular books that have gotten a, a national audience or books like Heather McGee's The Sum of Us or um, Ira Katz Nelson's When um, Affirmative Action Was White, that I, among others, that it was also highly unequal, that prosperity, because structural racism was built in, because the segregationist wing of the Democratic Party made sure it was, and it was the only way to pass the Great New Deal reforms. And the great 
society tried to create a multiracial democracy, but at the same time, we pulled back after the Vietnam War sucked away the money and created a new era, a lot of those investments so that, frankly, African-Americans and other people of color have not caught up. And so what the Green New Deal tries to do, uh, what a lot of other uh, plans uh, try to do that are in D.C. right now, they try to use the climate transition, right, to recreate the conditions of the, of, of the uh, post-war period up to the 1970s, uh, but to do it for everyone and to make up for all the ground that's lost. Because in that period, we became a more unequal society because we helped white people become middle class and develop intergenerational wealth and denied it to white. So income inequality becomes bigger, not smaller, which is a shocking finding, right. which means we need to do more, which is why we need to make the interventions but I would say, and before I let you speak, is I think the critical thing a Katz Nelson or a Heather McGee says, and many others, is that's actually the interest of white people. So it is not just doing something for Milwaukee and sometimes get derided because it is harming all of us. We don't have Medicare for all because of structural racism and the use of the race card. That harms more white people than black people, but it helps black, hurts black people more disproportionately because they're even more disadvantage. But overall, all of this is also to, it's to everyone's advantage. But we do need to help those who have been cut out of our society to have a true equal and shared prosperity and a true multiracial democracy. That's my pitch. Tell me what you agree or disagree with, because I, 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 I asked the question along than I intended, but I, it's important stuff. So I want to lay it out. Well, I agree with all of it. And I think not only do I do I agree with it, but I think it is a very sharp, I think it's a very timely and up-to-date analysis of the intersection of environmental, racial, um, and economic issues. So I guess you can't improve on perfection, right, Robert? So I'll let it be. <laughs> oh. oh, no, Claire, you got to come back with something harder. Or, or maybe, maybe you could throw in something about what, how would you build structural racism? into what we build back better. And you know, but, some of that is in build back better, some of it is still remains to be done, even if we can get the full 3.5 trillion, which we have to. Well, I think, you know, you know, you know, as I mentioned before, that there is another dimension that I think has been ignored for too long. It's not just a matter of economic justice, but also racial justice. And to identify in those economic issues what we need to improve. And then also the intersection for which there is commonality between all racial backgrounds. And I think if you look at a really good case study would be Milwaukee, where you saw in Milwaukee and across the country, the hollowing out of the manufacturing base. And I know a lot about that because my grandfather, my uncle and my cousin worked at Allen Bradley and they, you know, thousands of workers were there. And I think what you saw was the hollowing out of the manufacturing base, which had a particularly negative impact on people of color because disproportionately, that is where people of color lived. And I think live. And I think also what you see when it comes to environmental justice is how environmental degradation, and pollution, and then globally climate change has a particularly negative effect um, impact on people of color. 
And so I think you have to, there's an intersection of environmental, racial, and economic. And if you look behind me, you got two colors, you have blue and green. And I think one of the elusive coalitions in the progressive movement has been labor and the environmental movement. And I think if there's one state where you can lead off on that, it's going to be Wisconsin because we are the birthplace of the modern day environmental movement. We also have one of the biggest manufacturing states and also a long manufacturing state, a good union profile for those jobs. So I think that we are set up in such a way that to have a US Senator that understands the intersection of these issues and can adopt that in a philosophy for how he or she, and I believe I would be the best candidate that would attack those issues in Washington. Well, we have got to wrap it up. We really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and lay out, you know, not only where you're from, but um, why you're running. Uh, really appreciate it, uh, Tom. Good. And I, oh my, and I just about failed to do this. And that's a plug for my book that addresses some of those issues. So I worked with a local union to help save a paper mill, learned a lot of interesting thing. A lot of the issues we've been talking about in the last 40 minutes are covered in that book. It's called One Day Stronger. And you can check it out at our website at onedaystrongerbook.com. And with that, folks, we got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. We will see you all next week. We want to thank Outagamie County Executive Tom Nelson for joining us. And folks, see you all next week here at the Battleground Wisconsin. <laughs>